dollars, so I didn't do it. So anyway, here we are. Uh, this month, talking about God's design, our bodies, and this cultural moment. Liberating in biblical perspectives for gender and sexuality. And so uh, we're having a good time here. And so last week we talked about biblical femininity. And the women, you guys got off really nice, I think. And so uh, I did some research uh, about the male brain and the female brain. Now, I'm not a neurologist. I'm just going to report the facts to you. So I think we have a picture of uh, the female brain here. And um, I don't know what headache, headache generator. I'm not sure, sure what that is. Um, you have... Uh, you see the shiny things in Diamond's Old Factory? The big I told you so gland? Uh, I don't even know what that means, really. Uh, you see the, real, the small particle realization of wants versus needs? Um, the gossip control center, I told you so gland. And the footnote, put oil into the car and be quiet during the game glands are only active when shiny things and the old diamonds old factory has been satisfied or, or when there's been a shoe sale. So I, I, I'm not sure. Don't uh, crucify the messenger. I'm just reporting facts here. And so, so then we have uh, the, the male brain on the other side. And uh, <laughs> one big driving... Uh, uh, Impulse there. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, we got ball sports. Uh, you see this tiny, tiny listening particle? Especially when there's sports on, though that gets shut off, completely shut off. Um, uh, you see the footnote, listening to children cry in the middle of night gland is not shown due to its microscopic nature. So uh, you got the TV and remote uh, addiction control center. The, the small particle toilet aiming cell. <laughs> let's just say I have three boys. Uh, let's just say the oldest one goes in the garage bathroom to avoid things that his brothers do. That supposedly it's never his fault, right? It's never his fault. So, so anyway, uh, try not to get fired today, but uh, just not a neurologist. I just see, see these things and, you know, just share them with uh, my beloved congregation. So... So last week, uh, I asked the question, what is a woman? This week, uh, and even after this week, uh, uh, Christian Eikovic, our youth pastor, we're doing worship planning. He's like, did you meet all these weeks ago? You meant to preach on biblical masculinity on Father's Day? And I was like, genius, right? Genius. <laughs> So anyway, so today's question, whatever happened to biblical masculinity? Whatever happened to biblical sense of masculinity? There's one word that's being placed before masculinity these days by our greater culture, and let me assure you, it is not the word biblical. No one is talking about biblical masculinity. What our culture is talking about, when our culture is circling around, is this idea of toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity, it really entered our cultural consciousness through the recent Me Too movement. 
And best as I can define the term, toxic masculinity seems to live at the intersection of violent aggression, sexual entitlement, and the base domination of women. I hope that I don't have to say to you that is a very far cry from biblical masculinity. But if it's not toxic masculinity that our culture is highlighting, countless TV shows and countless movies have all but solidified a cultural trope of the, quote, hapless and bumbling dad on TV shows. Dads are lazy. Dads are silly. Dads are gluttonous. Dads are only good for barbecuing and drinking an excessive amount of beer. Listen to this exchange from The Simpsons, which is really typical of the male portrayal on TV shows today. Mr. Bergstrom, the teacher, Lisa, your homework is always so neat. How can I put this? Does your father help you with it? Lisa, the daughter, no. Homework's not my father's specialty. Teacher, well, there's no shame in it. I mean, my dad, not mine. Teacher, well, you didn't let me finish. Lisa says, unless the next word was burped, you didn't have to. Dads are clever, but never allowed to be smart. Dads are fun, but never allowed to be respected by their kids. Dads can't cook. Dads can't change diapers. Dads can't clean up a single mess without making it worse. Think Al Bundy, think Homer Simpson, think of a million other instances where our culture is degrading and making fun of masculinity. Whatever happened to biblical masculinity? Even in the church, books have been written about the feminization of the church in the modern era. Consider these facts. In America, among evangelical Christians, 57% of the members are women. Amongst mainline Protestant churches, 66% are women. About one out of four, 23% of married women attend church without their husbands. The author of Why Men Hate Going to Church says it like this. He says, the classic example of the feminization of the church is the worship pose of the eyes shut and the arms raised in this tender embrace singing a song that says, I'm desperate for you, you're the air I breathe. Guys don't talk to guys like that. Whatever happened to biblical masculinity? Because there has been some amazing moments of masculinity throughout church history. Martin Luther, the great reformer, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. Ignatius of Antioch, the early church martyr who was sentenced to death by lions. Did you get this in your head? You're going to be trotted out and lions are going to eat you. This is what he says. May I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. If they're unwilling to assail me, I will compel them to do so. The Apostle Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians tells the men of the church, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And so in the Bible, you have Daniel in the lion's den, you have 
David defeating Goliath. You have Moses confronting courageously Pharaoh, Elijah challenging the prophets of Baal. Yet for some reason, when it comes to Jesus, we often have a very feminized version of Christ. Jesus has often been portrayed in Roman Catholic paintings throughout the years, just like he's been got given a fresh of cold of fresh coat of blush. Maybe tweeze his eyebrows a bit. Talk about a feminized Jesus. Go look at any art gallery in Europe. That's what you're going to see. Modern portraits and pulpits sometimes portray Christ as gently knocking on the door of your little heart. Will you please, 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 pretty please just accept me? Friends, Christ is not passive. Christ is not in distress, hoping that you'll open the little door of his heart so he won't feel bad. Christ is gentle and lowly and meek, but he's also the conquering king, the cosmic victor over sin, death, and the devil, and the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen? One author says this, we have not only greatly misrepresented Jesus in his great sovereignty, but also robbed him of his masculinity. Indeed, of all the masculine men that our world has ever known, none compare to Jesus. Do you believe this? In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus utters words that has never been replicated. He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Just seven words in the English, four in the Greek. At face value, you look at those words, they're rather unremarkable by themselves. Grammatically, it's just a simple sentence. Descriptively, it's a simple directional movement. But behind those words of Jesus lies a depth of masculinity, of courage, of love, and sacrifice that no man can ever rival. I'm going up to Jerusalem to give my life as a ransom and sacrifice out of love on a Roman cross. And it's by his own choice. Christ defines the category biblical masculinity. Jesus fills up the container completely. Whatever biblical masculinity is, Jesus is that. Can I get an amen? But I've gotten a little ahead of myself. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man, the word there is Adam, meaning human being, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male, Zakar, and female, Nekaba, he created them. I am a Zakar. What does that mean? Imagine with me for a moment a successful businessman, respected at work by his colleagues. His retirement is looking pretty good. He takes his family on vacations. He's a moral guy, totally upstanding in honesty and integrity. He even volunteers at church. And yet, he has no idea how to move with tenderness and courage into the chaos of his teenage daughter's life or into the woundedness of his wife's heart and hurt. Is that 
a masculine man? Many would think so. But it really comes from a shallow understanding because it does not incorporate you being a gendered image bearer of a relational God. How does God exist relational? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are made in His relational image. Larry Crabb says it like this. Men, if you're given to outbursts of rage that you later regret, if sexual urges drive you towards satisfaction with little thought of anyone but yourself, if your conversations mostly revolve around business, sports, and politics, if moving towards your wife to help her be fully alive as a woman is a new thought, if even one of these is true for your life, then you're likely living with a false understanding of what it means to be a man. Christ in the Incarnation storms into our world and makes a lasting relational impact right in the midst of our chaos. So zakar, what does it mean? It means to leave a mark to make an impact. In the background of this word, in the ancient Near East, the word referred to a king's assistant, to the man charged with a very important privilege of reminding the king of matters that required his royal attention. Zakar came to mean someone who remembers something important and with that information moves to do something important. So zakar, the essence of biblical masculinity, is one who remembers and moves. A zakar is one who remembers God's word and then moves into his world with relational power and purpose. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Question, where is Eve? This word about good and evil, was this word given to Adam before or after the creation of Eve? God issued the warning to Adam before Eve was created. Why? Have you ever asked the question? Why not give both Adam and Eve these instructions, O oh God, if they were so, so very, very important? But the instruction was only given to Adam. Adam, remember my words, and then be prepared to move with power and purpose to reveal my plan. And so in Genesis 3, the serpent appears. Let me ask you another question. Where is Adam? Genesis 3, 6 says like this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. I remember my hero and my mentor, I think I can call him Larry Crabb, 
once talking about this passage. And Larry Crabb said something like this. He said, I phoned my friend, distinguished professor of Old Testament, knew Hebrew like the back of his hand, and I just asked him a question over the phone. Buddy, get out your Bible. Can I ask you, where was Adam during the temptation in the garden? And so Larry Crabb says he heard over the phone his friend taking out this big Hebrew Bible ensues three or four minutes of total silence. He's looking at the the Hebrew text there in Genesis chapter 3. And after three or four minutes, this professor breaks the silence. And he says, Larry, doggone it. That son of a gun was right there. He was right there with Eve. Genesis 3 was the perfect opportunity for Adam to be a zakar, to remember God's word and move relationally towards his wife. Honey, don't listen to the snake. Listen to God. Let me tell you again exactly what God has said. He didn't say we couldn't touch the tree. You're getting the prohibition wrong, making the prohibition more extreme than God himself. And also, if I hear you right, Eve, you seem to imply that if we ate the forbidden fruit that we might die, God said that we would surely die. Now you're minimizing the consequences. But what does Adam do? Adam remains totally silent. He doesn't remember God's word, and he doesn't move with relational power and purpose into the heart and into the soul and into the life of his wife. Now, men, think about the situation. It's a chaotic and very stressful situation there in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have never, ever seen before a talking snake. And so what's going on, right? Lots of feelings are swirling about in this conversation. Eve is confronting lots of emotions in this moment. In short, a very chaotic situation. And so what does Adam do? Like so many husbands after him, Adam completely shuts down. Adam turns away from his wife. Adam doesn't remember his God. And Adam does not remember God's word. Adam is Silent. Men, only men, who hear God's call, remember God's word, and then move with relational power into the lives of others become masculine men. All others do not. Why? Because when God remembers, God moves. Remember, I'm trying to define our being gendered image bearers after a very relational God. And so when God remembers, God moves every single time. This is your template, men, for knowing how to relate. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. It says, but God remembered Noah. What's coming after that chapter? Good things for the people of God. Good things for Noah. Because when God remembers, what happens And then the waters subsided. Genesis 19, and God remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities he was about to overthrow. Why? Because he remembered his servant Abraham. 
Genesis 30, then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. Exodus chapter 2, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Redemption is coming, O people of God. The psalmists knew at least one thing, one beautiful thing about God, that God is a remembering God. Psalm 25, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Psalm 74, remember your congregation, which you have redeemed. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. When God remembers, God moves. And God's people knew this about him. This is how God relates to us. When the people of God were in trouble, they pleaded with God to remember his character, to remember his covenant, because when he did so, he would move into their chaos and into their lives with purpose, revealing his plan for them. How does that relate to biblical masculinity? I've been saying in this sermon series that the very essence of being made in the image of God is that we are called to reflect the divine life of God, God's very relationality. God's relationality consists of a joyful commitment to love the other at any cost to himself. That's how God relates. And so Genesis 3, in part, was a colossal failure of masculinity. God failed, Adam failed to remember, and Adam failed to move relationally in a way that reflected the divine life of God, which really has to do with Adam's core fear, the, one of the core fears of a man. Last week I said this, every living person has a core fear. What is yours? Some of you need to get out journals this week, right? Last week I suggested that one of the core fears of a woman is invisibility, an invitation with no response. A deeply feminine woman invites others to see the undamageable beauty of who God created her to be. She lives not in a guarded, self-protected way, but with an open posture relationally, just like God. Yet, what if I live open relationally to you, a female image bearer says, and you don't see me, you don't know me, you don't love me, so the unfeminine soul is prone to withdraw, prone to close herself off, and prone to practice self-protection. You see, when fear rules a life, a self-protective way of relating feels both natural and necessary. Men are different. Did you know this? Maybe I should have started there. Men hide differently than women. Men tend to hide in their competencies. Men tend to hide in their jobs. Men tend to say to themselves, this is what I'm good at. This is what I've been trained to do. So that is exactly what I'm going to do with my life. I remember on the, 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 a few years ago, we were talking about, we had a series on marriage. And I was listening to this podcast. There was this chaplain of the Detroit Tigers. If you get to be a pastor of a baseball team, you have done well. And so he says, you know, you know, part of the reason, you know, I love and I hide basically what he was saying. I hide in my work is because when I go to the clubhouse, I receive this. 
yay, yay. But when I come home, I often receive boo, boo. And so what do men do? I'm going to hide in my competencies. I'm going to hide in my vocation. Imagine Adam, the joy Adam felt in naming all the animals. God brings him animal after animal after animal. That's an elephant. That's a camel. That's a zebra. That's a duck-billed platypus. And God's like, what? Are you sure? He's like, yes, duck-billed platypus. Just take my word for it, Lord. So men tend to hide in their work because when they move into their work, they often feel validated, affirmed. But when they move into a wife's feminine soul, how do they feel? Totally unprepared? Often inadequate? And so one of the core fears of a man is weightlessness. Do I really have what it takes relationally to reveal the divine life of God in the way that I relate? Do I really have what it takes to remember what God has said and then move into the soul and into the heart of my wife, into the soul and the heart of my children? What if she closes up? What if she self-protects? What if my kids are embarrassed about me or reject me? And what if I make a total mess of it? And what if I feel, if I'm being really, really honest with myself, way more manly, picking up a ball, or hiding at work in my competencies. And so an unmasculine man, an unmasculine soul begins to say to himself, I'll make an impact at work. I'm going to only move in my vocational strengths where I've been trained and where I feel adequate. I'm going to hide in my competencies. Relationally, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix things. I'm going to fix it. Women, how does that feel when all your husband does is want to fix you? I'm not hearing very many feminine amens, right? And so what happens when Adam comes alongside Eve and there's chaos, there's emotions, and there's stress. I'll tell you what I said, still say. God, I didn't get this playbook. If my wife could just gently say to me all the things she's struggling with, without any tears, without any emotions, I would be a great masculine man. So Adam says, I don't know what it, if I have what it takes to enter courageously and tenderly, remembering God's word into the soul of my wife. And so Adam often keeps silent. His core fear is weightlessness. And so if relational femininity reveals the invitational beauty of God, come and see the beauty of who God is. God always relates to you how? Like this, right? Never like this always inviting you to this beautiful dance of the Trinity. Then, relational masculinity reveals the incarnational beauty of God. God comes into our world in the incarnation, remembering the covenant. 
He takes the initiative out of love, crossing into our world, into our relationships, into our lives with power and with purpose. John chapter 1, the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us, relationally. The message version says like this, God moved into the neighborhood. Men, can you reveal something unique about the divine life of God in the way you relate incarnationally, moving towards your wife, your children, and your friends? Or are you a bit like Maverick? In the first Top Gun, I haven't seen the second. Remember uh, Maverick after he loses Goose? Goose dies. If this is news to you, you've only had like 30 years to watch it. Sorry. <laughs> Goose is up in the air again, right? After Goose's death, he's in a big dog fight. And what is Merlin, his another, their second in command, saying from right behind him? He's saying, Maverick, engage, 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 engage. What are you doing? You've got to get in the fight. They need you relationally. Merlin didn't say relationally. That was me. Get in the fight relationally. Follow Christ, this full-blooded male, this picture of absolute biblical masculinity. Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. Because, men, when you do that, when you follow that Christ, you will reveal something beautiful of Christ's incarnationally strong and courageous and loving way of relating. And it will bless the socks off everyone around you, your friends, your children, your church, and yes, even your wife. Let me give Larry Crabb the last word. He says, if relational femininity is displayed by a woman who is open, not withdrawn, to receive godly movement, anything that advances the purposes of God, then relational masculinity is revealed in a man who remembers God's story and moves with purpose to advance the plot line in another's life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us male and female. Father, it's amazing that you only can express fully your relational nature in male and female. And so we pray for my sisters that they would lean in to being deeply feminine women for the glory of God. We pray for my brothers in Christ on this Father's Day, that today and every other day, that they would embrace being deeply masculine men for the glory of God. God, thank you for the grace. We don't live it out perfectly. For the grace when we make a total mess of it for your patience and kindness to us, drawing us to yourself. Lord, we love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We thank God for bringing Jason this morning. We love our message. Let's stand as we sing our hymn of
good news is that God is inviting you to dance with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is who you were created to be with, and also this is your template of how to relate as husband and wife, as friend, as church member, the glory of God. There'll be a prayer team waiting to continue to, to pray. I hope that you come every Sunday. Lord, speak to me. I want to do business with you, oh Lord. Receive the benediction. Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord, lift up his countenance and give you peace. In the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Men, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day.